welcome. Nice to see everybody who's here tonight. Some for the first time, I think, who, have, who are here with us, and we make you very welcome. Thanks for being here. Um, how this meeting works is for the next 50 minutes, Johnny and I are going to be speaking to you. Um, obviously, I'll be going first, and then Johnny will follow about from the Bible about the gospel. If you have any questions on what you hear, um, where that's found in the Bible, or the or any, any just questions, we'd be more than happy to talk to you afterward. And so we hope that this message will have an impact on you and will change your life. And that's what we're going to be looking at again tonight. Before we read from the Bible, let's take a moment and pray. And chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. What we've been looking at um, this week in the Bible are lives that have been totally transformed by the gospel. Lives that have never been the same. And for those of you who are here for the first time, it has been my great delight and also burden to look at what makes the gospel so good. It means good news. What's so good about it? And we've noticed, number one, that it's true. And because it's true, it's good. Wouldn't matter how good it seemed if it wasn't true. But secondly, it transforms lives. And that's what makes it good. And we've looked at a few cases, and we're going to look at another one tonight. On Monday, we visited a man in the desert. He was from Ethiopia. And we jogged up next to his chariot, and we found his life changed by the gospel. On Tuesday night, we were in a darker place. We were on the night shift, and we joined a man in the prison cell in Philippi. And we found his life transformed by the gospel. Last night, we were going even lower down the chain. We found just a beggar, a blind beggar. And his life was totally changed by the gospel. Totally changed. And tonight, we're going to look at another man. You might say we're even going a step lower, if it's possible, than a blind beggar. But let's just see. Luke chapter 23, and beginning at verse 20. Pilate, therefore, willing to release Jesus, spake again to them. But they cried, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. And now verse 32. And there were also two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. Verse 39. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we... Indeed, justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. This criminal that was crucified right beside Jesus Christ, right beside him, his life was changed 
by the gospel. And I'd just like to look at how it was changed, some of the things that went into this transformation. The first thing that's pretty obvious is, is the timing of his experience. It was late, wasn't it? He didn't have much time left. He was, uh, as far as um, scholars are concerned, he was likely a Jewish man, simply because the Romans did not crucify Romans in that day. And these two criminals beside them seem to reference the Christ and, and things like that. So he was likely a Jewish criminal. What does that mean? That means that he had much of the Bible. He had a good understanding of what the Bible was about. He knew a lot of the Old Testament. He would have heard about the Lamb of God, that God would provide for himself a Lamb. But this, this Jewish man, if he was Jewish, we're just assuming here, somehow, someway, he took a wrong turn. And he became what the Bible calls in, in this version a malefactor, likely a thief and a criminal. And the Romans had a very extreme way to deal with disorder in their society, crucifixion, very painful death, where someone would literally suffocate in their own, just hanging by nails in their hands and feet. A very shameful, painful, and public death, so everyone could be warned about what happens to future criminals. And he is just being led, he has just been put to the cross. It says that there were two other malefactors led with him to be put to death. And then it says one of the malefactors which were hanged by him. So he's hanging on the cross. He doesn't have much time left. Maybe days. And some of the more gruesome cases of crucifixion, he might hang there for days. But he is at the final moments before he is going to meet God. Final, final moments. And that's the timing of this verse. You know, one of the things that grips me sometimes when I stand up here to preach the gospel is that everyone here, you all look healthy and, and nice. This could be somebody's final moments. Right here, the preachers aren't the professionals, but this could be the last gospel series in the Stark Road Gospel Hall you ever sit in. Just right here. Final moments. And they come so quickly. And the timing of it. It was late. But as you'll find out, it wasn't too late. Praise God. Late, but not too late. The next thing you notice is not just the timing. I want you to notice the taunting of this thief. In Matthew and Mark, we are told that the two criminals that were hanged beside the Lord Jesus, he was in the middle and the two on each side. Both of them, it says in Matthew and Mark, they mocked him. They taunted him. They made fun of him. And, you know, that's the same thing in gospel meetings and, and when we talk to other people about the gospel. Sometimes we get the reaction of people making fun of it. It's a silly message. You really spend your time. You really pray about this. You really weep about this. You're really burdened about this. And they make fun of the gospel just like they made fun of Jesus. And they made fun of Jesus in that day, too. Taunting him. They made fun of who he was. Are you really the Christ? <laughs> the Christ on a cross? No. They made fun of who he was, what he did, what he said. And maybe there's somebody, maybe there's somebody like that in this gospel meeting. Somebody who mocks the Savior. Somebody who makes fun of him. 
somebody who has no time for him, somebody who thinks this is silly. And that's how this criminal began. But really, I just want to get very quickly to this point. Not the timing or the taunting, but the turning of the thief. There was something that happened in this man's experience on the cross when he turned. He turned away from taunting and from making fun of the Savior. He turned. And that's what I would like to look at. Because this is what changed his life and and his eternity. It says this in um, in verse 39, or verse 40. This thief, he turns to the other one. They're continuing to mock. The one thief says, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. If you're really who you say you are, just save us. Come down and save us. And this other criminal, he turns to that one and he says, do you not fear God? And there's something about that that causes him just to turn. Do you not fear God? What was it about the fear of God that came to the despicable place called Golgotha, Calvary? What was it about the fear of God? You know, people start thinking about God when they come close to death. I work with people who have tried to take their own lives, many of them, most of them. And they start thinking about God, about what happens after this life is is done. What happens after the page of these books on earth are closed? And they start thinking about God. And this man, he starts thinking about God. He is hours away from meeting God. Hours away. And there's, they're, they're mocking, and the crowd in front of him is mocking. Some people in front of the cross are gambling. Nobody is taking it very seriously. But this man, he is about to enter his eternal home, either in heaven or in hell. Hours away. And he turns to the other one who's just making fun of the Christ, and he says, do you not fear God? Do you not fear God? We are about to meet God. And there's something about that that just causes him to think and to turn. And he says, we are getting what we deserve. You and I, we are getting exactly what we deserve. He says, we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. The crimes that we've committed against the Roman government, this is what we deserve. We deserve to be crucified. We deserve to hang on the cross. And you know what must have entered his mind? If this is what I deserve from Rome... What do I deserve from God? If this is the punishment from Rome, and I I deserve it for whatever he did, what do I deserve from God? And he starts to, to think of an eternity without God, an eternity of punishment for the many crimes that he had done. And he turns because he understood something about himself. He understood that he had sinned, that he had committed crimes, and that he was justly, that he was deserving of punishment. You know, those are two things, two things that everyone must understand before they're ever saved. They must understand that they have sinned against God, not against Rome or the United States, but they have sinned against God, and that they deserve God's punishment for those crimes. It is just like if you committed any kind of infraction here in Michigan, whether it was something as small as speeding or something as big as murder, you have sinned, you have broken the law of the state of Michigan.
for that crime, you would receive a fine or a certain amount of time in jail. The Bible gives us its standard, the law, and it tells us that we have broken God's law. We have sinned, and the sin is bad enough that we deserve his righteous punishment. Look at what he says. We receive the due reward of our deeds. We're getting what we deserve. You know, the reason why so many people come to gospel meetings like this and they leave without being touched and without being saved is because they've never understood this. If, if God were to actually put me in hell, it's not what I deserve. According to the Bible, it is what we deserve. The Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We were talking to a man today, and he said that he couldn't imagine. Um, he was uh, asking us about whether a, a criminal who had committed so many crimes, he, he said some horrific ones like rape and murder, and he was just a man who had lived a pretty good life. And he couldn't imagine how God could forgive them. And yet somehow, after all the good things he had done, he wouldn't be in heaven. And we were trying to tell him that there is just one standard, and it doesn't matter how far low you've fallen. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I remember when we were kids, and we went to a, an amusement park far away from here, and there's the standard for how tall you have to be to get on the ride. And we went up, and we stood way up like this, but we were still short. We were still short. Some of us were only that short. Others were that short, but we were all short, and there was no getting in. And there will be no getting into heaven with just one sin. One sin is enough to, to leave us out of heaven and to send us to hell. And so this man understood that, you see. He understood that. He understood. That was step number one. When he thought about fearing God, it was about his sin. The second thing he understood, though, is he understood something about the Savior. He understood something about the man in the middle. And this is what he understood. He's different. He says, I'm over here. Maybe it was over there. I'm not sure. I'm over here. And there's another one over here. And both of us, we're getting what we deserve. Both of us are in the same boat. And the boat's going down. But the man in the middle, there's something different about him. And this is what he says is different about him. This man has done nothing amiss. This man on the center cross has not done one thing out of place. He has not done one sin. We have sinned, and we're getting what we deserve by the Roman government, and we will eventually get what we deserve by God forever. But this man hasn't done anything wrong. Not one thing out of place. And something dawned on his mind. He thought to himself, if I am here crucified for my crimes, but this man has done no crimes, and yet he is being crucified, mocked, forsaken by God, he actually lifts up his voice and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is this man going through? What has he done wrong? And he says, he's not there for his crimes. He's there for mine. And I like to think that a Jewish thief got a little light bulb from Isaiah 53. I'm not sure why I like to think that. <laughs> he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our sins. The punishment so that we can have peace was on him. 
And with his stripes we are healed. And he turns to him and he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He knows who the man in the middle is. The man in the middle is the promised Christ. The man in the middle is the one who is going to reign one day on this earth. And the man in the middle was the one who came to suffer for sins. God punished him. And this criminal, when he understands, I'm getting what I deserve. But here's a man, and he's not getting what he deserves. He's getting what I deserve. And this simple truth of substitution. And he says, Lord, remember me. You know, I, substitution will not make any sense unless you, first of all, understand what you deserve. It will be total darkness. You have no idea what the cross means, why God sending his son on the cross. That will be totally nonsense. You can try to piece things together. You can put it like a math problem. It will never work. But once you understand, my sins deserve eternal death, but Jesus died for me. That's when people face and get to understand what the cross meant. It was God sending his own son to die for our sins. But the man understood more than that. He understood more than he was dying for sin. He understood that this man, Jesus, he wasn't going to stay on that cross. He says, Lord, remember me. When you come into your kingdom. My, my. If you were, if you were there, that is a candidate for a mental health asylum. Somebody on a cross in a kingdom? <laughs> what? He skipped his medication or something. Somebody on the cross in a kingdom? But he understood. He understood who the man was. This was the Christ. And this was the way to the kingdom. It was by way of the cross. And he knew that this man, he's not going to stay on the cross. No. The prophecy said that one day, not only would he die, but he would rise again. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He understood that this man is going to rise again. And he turns to him. Lord, remember me. You know, the Lord Jesus, after he had died on that cross, and after they had buried him, he did rise again. And God was saying when he raised him from the dead that I'm satisfied with Christ when it comes to sin. I'm settled on sin in Christ and nobody else. And so he turned to the understanding about who he was. I deserve what I'm getting, who Christ is. Now listen to this. I deserve what I'm getting. He understood that so simply there. And then he does something else. He not only turns, but he trusts. He says, Lord, remember me. Me. Now hold it. There were two criminals there. Why didn't he say, Lord, remember us? There's two of us here, Lord. You see, salvation is a personal acceptance of Jesus Christ. He becomes a personal Savior. 
It's not, Lord, remember us. It's, Lord, remember me. You remember the man in the, in the prison guard? What must I do to be saved? Right? Lord, remember me. It's me, Lord. Remember me. And you know, salvation is a very personal thing. It is when somebody understands I'm the one going down. I'm the one who deserves to perish. I'm the one who should be in hell. Christ has died instead of me. And they personally place their faith in Christ. Lord, remember me. Now, what would you have done? If you were standing in the middle cross and somebody had been making fun of you for hours and all of a sudden he comes to this experience and he clues in and all of a sudden he says, okay, I've changed my whole mind about everything. (laughs) Remember me. When you come into your kingdom, what would you have done? You know what the Lord Jesus did? Even when every breath was torture, he says this. Today, you will be with me in paradise today. Number one, that was a very comforting thing for that criminal. If you read about crucifixion, some of those criminals would have hung on crosses for days, suffering. And the Lord Jesus was telling him, listen, there's not going to be days. It's today. You're not going to have to be here for days. It's today. But number two, it was great assurance. You know what I learned from this story? God never saves somebody without making sure that they just know it. They know it. Saved. Remember me? Today, today you will be with me in paradise. We were talking to a man today, and he was telling us that you can never know, kind of like, it's really struggle to ever know that you're ever going to be in heaven. And he was talking to us about at funerals how they say that so-and-so is in heaven, but how do they possibly know that you can never know? So I asked him, you know, I was studying for this message. <laughs> I said, you know, there's an interesting story in the Bible of a, of a criminal, and he's beside the Lord Jesus, he knew the story. I said, where's the criminal today? He said, oh, it's in heaven. How do you know? It's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. All right. (laughs) If I were to ask you, you boys here, if I were to ask you, or some of you in the back, where's the thief today? You would say, come on. He's in paradise. He's in heaven. So the word of God is enough for you to know where he is. But it's not enough for you to know where you'll be. Have I followed that correctly? The word of God is enough for you to know where the thief is. You know he's in heaven. It says right there. But it's not enough for you to know where you'll be. Oh, no. It's enough. And when a person rests on the word of God, when they find their resting place, not in devices or creeds, You know, the story of the thief is so precious because, you know, he can't do anything. There's nothing he can give to Christ. He's just hanging on a cross, helpless. The only thing he can give to Christ is his faith. And that's all he needs to do. And his faith found a resting place, and Christ gave him his word. 
You say, well, that's good. The transformation, his life was changed. I wonder sometimes, what did Calvary look like after that man was saved? What did he do the rest of the time? Certainly he wasn't taunting anymore. What was he doing the rest of his time hanging, by the, hanging on the cross? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. You know, it's touching to me that all the rest of the disciples, it tells us they forsook him. The Lord Jesus was all alone. And all he had was one criminal. Saved at the 11th hour and the 59th second. One criminal. You know, one of the things I love about this study that I've been doing is this. You know, when we tell stories to kids, our kids, Cinderella, Pinocchio, all the rest. They're fairy tales, right? Now I'm going to meet this man one day. And I'm going to meet the man from Ethiopia. And I'm going to meet that Philippian jailer. And I'm going to meet that blind man. And I really look forward to meeting this man. What was it like? What's his name? Somebody help me. (laughs) What was it like on the cross? I'll just close with this before Johnny will speak to you. There was another criminal, wasn't there? Two criminals. The same distance from Christ. Both close enough to be saved. Same distance. They leave one meeting with Jesus Christ. As far as I know, the only meeting they had. One we know is in heaven. And we know nothing about the other one. Here we are in this gospel meeting. And make no mistake, this is not a meeting with Johnny and Joey. This is a meeting with Jesus Christ. This is a meeting with God the Son concerning your sin and how it can be forgiven. You can leave like this criminal. Lord, remember me. Or you can leave like the other criminal. Just remember this. This is late. But it's not too late.